the Platform Comics Podcast. Uh, my name is Tucker. This is our second episode. Uh, my guest today is Erica Schultz. I actually met her at the Motor City Comic Con in Detroit. Um, I didn't know who she was. I just went to this panel that I think was about writing, and I was just really blown away with how passionate she was and outspoken she was about, you know, what it means for her to be a writer and the challenges, you know, to breaking through and having people read her material. So uh, I got to talk to her a little bit after the panel and a little later on in Artist Alley. And we do talk a little bit about conventions. I'm always fascinated with this. I've only been to conventions as a guest and to network with people, but I've never kind of been behind the table selling something and not just uh, to, to readers, but also to to publishers. And, and she talks about how she uses two different business cards because depending on who she's talking to, and she has a whole strategy for that, which I thought was pretty interesting. And just like you have to be your own PR person at conventions and kind of learn to navigate that world, you have to do the same thing with social media. And she talks about um, how just because comic book Twitter is, you know, it's not nearly as toxic as other, you know, Twitter communities out there, um, but there still are boundaries you have to draw and, and, and knowing what you want to put out there. I mean, I think a lot of people now are worried about privacy and you know she has these rules and boundaries that she that she draws about what she chooses to share and what she doesn't so she's very active but at the same time there's a whole part of her life that is you know just for her and i i think anybody who's getting into comics everybody's going to tell you you know you got to be on social media you got to be putting stuff out there and you know so the sooner you figure out what you want that relationship to be i think the better um if you don't know her work she has written for you know marvel she's written daredevil I thought uh, one of the more interesting things we talked about was when she talked about writing Xena Warrior Princess and, and Charmed for Dynamite, that because they're licensed characters, how she had to learn to sort of trust the editor. Like, you know, when a company owns the characters and you don't, it's not your character. Like, you have to admit that they know more about the character than you. They know where the character should go more than you. And as a writer, as a creative person, you just want to create and express yourself. And it's hard to kind of drop the ego and and allow somebody else to navigate the ship and you're just kind of a, you know, a hired gun. And I think a lot of up-and-coming creators don't realize that. A publisher you know, will often tell you, like, this story needs to be exactly this many issues, this many pages, and this many arcs. And, you know, maybe they're not prepared uh, to, to, to give up that freedom of that you get from writing and be boxed in. But I think she has a great, you know, head on her shoulders about that. And she knows what, you know, is worth fighting for and, you know, which hill you don't want to die on. Lastly, I didn't know that she had done a lot of lettering work, which she had. I I was doing the research for this and I was surprised with how many lettering credits she had. Um, And so we talk about that, about what it's like to letter your own work. And when you can't, when the publisher tells you, no, you know, we already have a letter for this. You know, there are a lot of rules and stuff to like lettering that if you just learn the rules, even if you're not lettering yourself, you can kind of spot it in other people. And she talks about, you know, how people break the rules all the time, but that there's two really unbreakable rules that should never be broken. So we get into that stuff and a whole bunch more and uh, enjoy. This is my interview with Erica Schultz. So the first thing I noticed, you gave me your uh, Skype name. I won't give it away for privacy reasons, but it has the word Marvel in it. Yeah. And I'm guessing you had this uh, name before you actually wrote for anything for Marvel. Is that? Yeah, because I'm an X-Men fan. That, that's kind of cool. It's like a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You had a, you had the word Marvel in there and then you finally got to write something for Marvel. That's- Not yet, because I haven't written the X-Men yet. I tend, to, I tend to never be satisfied. I tend to say... Uh, 
okay, so that's great. Now what's next? Do you think that that's important for uh, people making stuff or is it, are you kind of doomed to be never happy if you can't ever uh, take in the, uh, the successes? I need to live in the moment more. I know that. Um, but there's just, just something about me that just, I, I can't ever be happy with what I have. And that's a horrible thing. And I, I understand that and drives my husband up a wall and back down again. Same thing with friends. Uh, they'll say, Oh, that's awesome. You got to write fill in the blank. And I'll always find a way to say, yeah, but it wasn't, you know, whatever. Um, I, when I was at motor city, which is where we met, um, I was on a panel and someone said, you know, isn't it great? You got to write daredevil. I said, yes, but my stupid brain said, why wasn't it captain America or why wasn't it the Avengers? Yeah. So we did meet at um, Motor City Comic Con in Detroit. I went to your panel, which was great, and then we talked a little bit at the Artist Alley about, um, you know, this competition and the and the podcast and stuff. Um, so, what is what's your relationship with conventions in general as like a creator? It's you know it's it's kind of a complicated relationship. Um, I think that at a certain point in everyone's career, they don't have to. Uh, do conventions anymore because they themselves have already sort of made it as the name. Uh, that name carries with it a certain amount of cachet and, and such. I would kind of consider myself middle management, <laughs> you know, um, whereas plenty of people know me, plenty of people don't. Um, I am new to a lot of people at a lot of different conventions. And because of that, I think that conventions are necessary to uh, to get your work in places where it might not have made it. Like I'm on the East Coast. Uh, you know, I go to a lot of conventions, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, that kind of thing. Most people here know who I am because I've done multiple conventions and I know that the shops around here are going to carry the books. But if you get a shop in, you know, who knows, Nowheresville, you know, Minnesota, well, I don't mean to pick on Minnesota, they might not know who I am. So doing a convention where those types of people might attend is important because this way I'm sort of saying, hey, I'm here, I have these types of stories. If this is something that you're interested in, here you go. So so you mentioned like... Um networking with like shops and I'm guessing, you know, publishers and, and maybe other creators. Is there any aspect of like getting new fans and new readers or is most of that coming from, from the internet? No, I mean, networking just in general, yes, to get new fans and new readers and, and to speak with publishers, but just, I, I like the, the aspect of meeting people in person. Um, I also like the idea of sort of you know, comics gateways. I mean, having done some very mainstream stuff sort of brings people to the table at conventions. I was doing a podcast with a gentleman and he is an enormous Daredevil fan. He had no clue who I was, but he picked up the Daredevil annual simply because he gets everything Daredevil. And once he did, he said, oh, wow, I really liked this. Let's see what else she's done. And then he went on and he picked up M3. And at the time, 12 Devils Dancing had just come out. So he, you know, picked that up too. 
so um, it's sort of like a, a you do something that's mainstream that sort of gets somebody's attention, and then you can use that as sort of a gateway to say, well, you know, the only reason why I got this job on Daredevil is because I've done all this indie work that you may not have heard of. You can lure them in with the uh, with the big names, and, exactly, and then hit, exactly. Them with, hit them with the good stuff. So you you mentioned like that you like the the in real life kind of relationships as well. I feel like a lot of younger people, when I talk to people um, trying to get into comics, like. They're so internet based that they don't, uh, I don't know, understand the benefit of going to a convention or going to like a meetup or, and meeting other people. I, I've meet so many people at conventions. Do you think it's like something that everybody needs to be doing? Like at least like local conventions and like meeting other creators, meeting editors, publishers, that kind of thing? I, I wouldn't say that I think it's something that everyone should do um, because there's plenty of things that people say that I should do for my career that I disagree with. And I'm also in my 40s. So I I know that some of the people that are just trying to get into comics now, um, there is a generational difference. And I think that um, it's a matter of if if you are the type of person who is comfortable meeting other people, because that is something that not everyone is comfortable in crowds. Not everyone is comfortable being around a lot of people. Uh, depending on the convention, it could be physically crowding. So to say to someone saying, you you know, in order to get a comics career, you have to go to convention, I think that that's kind of limiting to them. And um, you don't want to pop anybody's balloon. I would say that, yes, it is beneficial to go to conventions, um, especially if you are going to be speaking to editors and such. Because getting FaceTime is important simply because it's a little more memorable than an email. I think with emails, emails are very easy to sort of either ignore. um, And as I said, this literally email just (laughs) popped up and the email that you just sent me dropped down one level. Yeah, I mean, the point you're bringing up is a good point that some people are just more comfortable, you know, approaching people and talking to strangers and things like that. And Obviously, going to conventions costs money, and maybe you live somewhere that's far away, and then you would have to get like flights and stuff. So, so there definitely are some limiting factors. So, would you at least say that you should be, you know, actively on social media or whatever the most closest thing to online? Because I know even you, you claim to be, you know, this old timer, but you're on social media. You're active. <laughs> you're posting not just about comics, about your personal life, things like that. Is it- well, I well, I post limited things about my personal life. I think there there are some people that post a significant amount of things about their personal life, and that's something I'm not comfortable with. And that's, that's an old timer thing. Unfortunately, it's gotten to the point where, you know, as a creator, you're not just the creator, you're also PR, you know? So when you do a book, the publisher is pushing it, hopefully, um, but you yourself have to as well. And, um, so that, that is something that is, that is necessary. And yes, I would suggest doing some type of social media. I have a, an author page on Facebook, but I'm not really on it. Uh, I'm, I literally check it once every few weeks. I'm mostly on Twitter, mostly on Instagram. As wonderful as social media can be, there's a a, a great deal of toxicity with it. Uh, as a woman, I already have a target on myself. (laughs) I don't want that. I just, I just want to write comics. I just want to, you know, tell stories, share photos of my cat and, you know, talk to people about like movies and stuff. I saw some, some good cat photos on your, on your feed. Yeah. My cat is overweight. I know. I just made his vet appointment this morning. I called the vet this morning to make the appointment for his blood work. And I'm terrified that they're going to tell me he's obese. But that, 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 you say you don't like to share personal stuff. I mean, obviously that's not the most like personal information but that's that's, you know that reflects something 
that is personal. I mean, that is personal. And, and I realized that when I take photos of him, um, 90% of the time he, he basically lives in my office. Uh, I have my own office at home and he basically lives here. So everybody who's ever seen photos knows that the walls of my office are purple and that I have a purple carpet and, um, that I've got a bunch of artwork on the walls and things like that. So I, you know, not like I, I'm not like Taylor Swift, somebody's, you know, knock on wood, isn't going to show up on my doorstep. But at the same time, I mean, I, I am married and, and when you're, you're in a relationship with someone you're married, if you're putting a lot of your personal life out there, you're not just putting your personal life out there. You're, you're by extension, putting their personal life out there as well. And if that's not something that they sort of condone or, or, um, consent to, then it's sort of less is more. Is that making any sense? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I mean, I think the fact that you, you say you kind of keep it to just stuff that's in your office, like yeah. you wouldn't take a picture of in your, you know, living room or something else. Like even that sounds maybe a little silly, but it's like, it does create a boundary of like, here's what I share with the world and here's what's for me and my family, you know? So, I mean, I have, you know, expanded outside of my office, but 96, 7.63% of the photos are photos of my fat cat uh, laying on my purple and cream colored carpet. Just, um, just, uh, kind of wrapping up the stuff about conventions. Um, I've never had a table at a convention. I've only gone as like a guest and I like to meet people and walk around and, and check out people's work and stuff like that. Do you remember like your first table at a convention and what, like, what was your, uh, your reason for that? And what was your feelings about it? Um, the first convention that I went to was actually a charity convention. It was in, I think it's Short Hills, New Jersey for, uh, it was Superheroes for Hospice. And then I did that show a couple of times uh, over the years. They're not doing it anymore, but I had done it a few times over the years. Uh, I met Rick Parker, who used to do the Beavis and Butthead comics, and he was awesome. I was with... Uh, Paul Castiglia, who does a lot of work for, for Archie, he used to do the Superheroes for Hospice and I used to hang out with him. He's, he's a good guy, too. Have you like collaborated with anybody you met at, at, at conventions, like artists mm -hmm. and stuff? I have, actually. Um, I had Chris Campagna, who was actually also at uh, Motor City. Uh, he and I are collaborating on, on something right now. And um, trying to, uh, Jan Velasquez and I did a short story for Oneshi Press. Their anthology is called Heartbreaker. Emily Swan and I were sitting next to each other at Baltimore Comic Con a couple of years ago. Not a couple of years ago, many years ago. And she and I ended up um, doing a short also for Oneshi Press's anthology called Gabriel. When you do meet people there, are you how, how are you um how do you, how do people tend to like stay in touch after you meet? Are they like just hey now you're on social media you become friends or follow each other on Twitter? Do you, are you emailing? I'm more email rather than social media. Like um, I have two business cards. I have a business card with my social media information, and I have a business card with my email and my phone number. They're two very different cards, so I can have them both in my pocket, have a conversation with someone, and not break eye contact and know which card I'm pulling out of my pocket. Right. So so I'm guessing the one with the email and phone number is like for people you have a more serious relationship with or it's a more business relationship and not just a random fan or... Yeah. Uh, like I, I believe I gave you my card with the email address on it because you had we had talked about uh, uh, working together on that project. That's, a, um, that's an interesting idea. 
What, with the cards? Yeah, like kind of having to, kind of what, going back to what I was asking earlier about like, are you trying to connect with fans at conventions or are you trying to connect with other creators and shops and things? And you kind of have to do both. You have to be like a salesman of your work to to the fans and then the other way as well. Yeah. So I don't want to stop and say, oh, wait, let me look for my card and, you know, crawl under my table and move heaven and earth to find a business card. I like to be able to just, you know, keep having the conversation, put my hand in my pocket and say, this is the one that I need and hand out. Is it a little bit annoying when you have a table and you kind of have to sit back there and you can't like necessarily go mingle and walk around? I just, a lot of times I see people sitting behind the table and they're kind of looking at their phones and, you know, it's like they're not necessarily anything going on, but they know they can't leave because at any moment somebody might show up interested and it's... Well, the old adage is if you want someone to come to your table, start eating food. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big eater. So the second I unhinge my jaw like a snake in order to, you know, inhale a cheeseburger or something is the second someone shows up and I've got ketchup and mustard all over my face and I look like a toddler. I'm like, I, for the most part, when I go to more local shows, I have my husband come with me to help me or I have a friend of mine uh, come with me to help me. So if I wanted to get up and sort of move around, uh, I usually have a, a secondary person to be like, okay, I'll watch the table. If you're a guest at shows, like I was a guest at Motor City, uh, they have volunteers that will come and, you know, watch your table for you if you have a panel to go to or something like that. Does a person at the table, like, sell stuff for you? Or they just let people know that um, you'll be back? Every show that I've been to, they have not, simply because I think it's a liability thing. Right. Because you're, you're, you're taking money, and that can be kind of a liability. Uh, they simply usually just say, you know, oh, you know, she'll be right back. She has a panel that she's on. The panel ends at 3.15. You know, she should be back within 20 minutes of that. That's nice of them. Yeah, it is nice because if you're standing there and the other, everybody says you got to keep hydrated. Well, it's tough to keep hydrated and drinking tons of water if you're standing behind your table and you're like, wow, I really got to pee and I can't leave the table. That's why you, you usually make friends with the people to the left or the right of you. Because then you say, I'll be back in five seconds. Got to run. And you just dash. That's like an immediate conversation starter with somebody next to you. Like, here, just watch my table for me kind of thing. Yeah, watch my table. I got to pee. It's happened a million times. It's happened. People have said it to me. I've said it to people. You know, it's kind of like this, like, you're, you're tabling with people. Like, the unspoken rule of tabling with somebody is somebody is inevitably going to shout at you that they have to pee and then run away. <laughs> Usually the, the first day of a show, I introduce myself to the person, to the people to the left and the right of me. And if I'm with my husband, my husband bakes. So usually they'll come, you know, it'll be that like sort of cartoonish thing where they'll come sort of, wow, something smells good. Hi, I'm so-and-so. It's nice to meet you. That's a good. That's a good one. If if anybody needs a good um, a good way to attract people, just have somebody bake a bunch of cookies or brownies or something. Yep. So after at the convention, I I didn't really know a lot of your work. I when I I went to the panel because I thought it was interesting, and that's when I kind of really started to like you and your personality and how passionate you were about the way you were speaking of it. Thank you. And the more I researched, and um, I thought it was interesting that you had you'd written for you know big publishers like Marvel and a little bit smaller like Dynamite and even like Action Lab and kind of working your way down to you actually had some Kickstarters that you were doing yourself. So it's like you were all over the board as far as putting your comics out there. Well, I had one Kickstarter. Um, I've been a part of multiple Kickstarters, um, but I myself and uh, Claire Connolly, 
we had a Kickstarter ourselves, but um, but that that was the first one that I actually did. No, I mean, I think it, I think it's cool um, that you kind of have this wide array of different outlets. And I, I guess my question is like, is is the goal to always eventually just only write for the big biggest publishers, or is there a part of you that likes doing stuff that's your own that you're releasing yourself with your friends and in, are in more control of? Uh, I mean, if if I'm being frank. The goal is always to write for large publishers simply because that's uh, more financially stable, to be to be perfectly honest. Right. If I had a big enough uh, name and and was a big enough and a well enough known person that um, I could put independent work out there and have it financed, then great. That's all I would do is independent work. But I do a lot of licensed work now because that's what pays for my independent work. You know, I, I work for Dynamite or Marvel or DC or wherever, and that money comes in, and then that's what gets put toward the indie work. But I'm guessing that I'm, I've never written for a big publisher or any publisher, but I'm guessing that the kind of like maybe the smaller the publisher or even when it's more creator owned, that there has to be a benefit to you know, the freedom that comes with, you know, it's your project, you're kind of in charge. Yeah, I mean, that is that is fun. Um, it's also a little arduous simply because you have to, especially if it's a long run of books, like 12 Devils Dancing was, was six issues, which is a decently long run. You try and find somebody who has the same vision as you are. And it's, it's a little like, wow, this is pressure, you know, because I'm going to be stuck with this person for a year. Uh, I really hope it works out. It's like going up to the International Space Station, not liking your roommate, you know? <laughs> right. So, so all these people you're collaborating with, um, and you have collaborated with a ton of a ton of people. Now, with, you know, the internet age and, and mo- most young people I know, like, they never meet the people. They, it's all, they meet them on forums or online or, or social media. What percentage of the people you're working with have you actually, like, met in real life and had actual, like, friendships with? And that's, that's where comics, uh, that's where conventions come in, mostly. Um especially like larger conventions like uh, San Diego or New York Comic-Con because um, a lot of people will come in for those shows and that's when you get the opportunity to meet them in person. You know, I had done the class, um, the DC talent uh, writer development talent class with Scott Snyder and um, I had known some of the other people in the class but it wasn't until doing like a San Diego or a New York that I actually got to sit down, meet them, have a cup of coffee kind of thing. For Charmed, the artist on Charmed that uh, I worked on with Dynamite is uh, an Italian artist named uh, Maria Laura Sanapo. And she's a wonderful artist. And she came to New York Comic Con um, uh, for a couple of years. And we would meet at New York Comic Con and meet in person and everything. So it was great because that is a genuine friendship. She's like a sister to me. Um, Ray Height, Ray Anthony Height, he's done a bunch of stuff for, for Marvel, Spider-Girl. He and I met at New York Comic Con in 2010. It was the first time I did my own table in 2010. And he was my, my next door neighbor. And uh, he was fantastic. And we collaborated on a couple of things uh, you know, throughout the years. I think meeting in real life is actually a really good thing to do. Uh, I know it's not possible a lot of times, 
but if the internet didn't exist and such, I wouldn't have been able to have worked with Maria. I wouldn't have been able to work with, you know, Ray or other people because, you know, it's it's a great distance. Sunny Lou, who was the artist on Hawk Girl when I did the eight page Hawk Girl story, he he's in Singapore. I mean, how would I have been able right. to, you know, work with him directly? There are several artists that I've worked with that I've yet to meet in person that I that I hope to. But if I never meet them in person, you know, we always have the internet. Yeah. Well, even even um, people who are overseas and it's via internet. I, I wrote a comic that the artist was in Argentina and mm-hmm. we would have these like hour long conversations and like show he would show sketches. And it was it still felt like we're sitting together collaborating more than just mm-hmm. like an email or being in like a Slack group or something like I think even that is like even the human voice, you know, is, is something more bonding and you can actually, like, I don't know, I feel like I'm more friends with the guy than if it was just a series of text messages. And that is true. I mean, there's an artist named Stellaria in, um, in Spain that I've been collaborating with. And it's, it's this sort of weird relationship that you have with somebody that you know them, but you don't know them. But, you know, and I find it funny because, you know, you talk to to people that are even older than I am uh, that, you know, talk about how, oh, well, you kids and your internet, that kind of thing. But that's that's sort of the way the world works these days. Cool. So kind of let's dive into a little bit just to like the writing process a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. because I'm sure there's people who want to write comics who are listening. You you mentioned uh, like writing a a six comic series and saying that that's kind of like, you know, that can be a big deal, even though some comics can go on for, you know, 60 issues or whatever. Even six issues can be a heavy, you know, writing task. And something that I always had issues with was like getting to issue number three or something and then wishing that you had done something in issue one. And how do you, how do you tackle stuff like that? Like when you're, you know, a story is going to be more than one issue or something. Like, how are you planning ahead all the issues and to make sure that you're not getting to the end and saying, oh, crap, I wish I would have done this in the beginning. Well, I mean, I'm always going to get to the end and say, I wish I did, you know, X instead of Y. But um, I try, I tend to write pretty tight outlines and um, I try to stick to those and to, to really sort of work everything out in that phase. Because in the outline phase, the story is still kind of malleable and you can still move things around without there being this, um, without it being very disruptive. Um, you haven't really, I mean, you've put pen to paper, but not to the point where someone's actually starting to draw the comic. And I, and I think you, you talked about this in the panel, but your actual like outlining process, like kind of starting with the smaller sentences and then kind of building uh, building them up. Yeah, um, basically, what I do is uh, I will take, I'll find out how long the story is going to be. Uh, if it's going to be, you know, 20 plus issues, I, I break it down by each arc. So how do you know, like, how, how long the story is going to be? Is it because the publisher is telling you or do you just visualize it in your head? Like, this just feels like a 10 issue story? A lot of times it is because the publisher will tell you because usually when you get contracted to do something, they'll say, okay, we were contracting you for X amount of issues and in those that amount of issues, you will be doing this many arcs. So for Xena, I was contracted for five issues, but two arcs. So I had one arc that was uh, three issues long, and I had one that was two. With uh, Charmed, it was five issues, but it was one story through. It was one story arc. So what you do is you say, okay, it's going to be this many issues, 
how many arcs is that going to be? It's going to be one arc, two arcs, whatever. So you take the first arc and you say, okay, it's going to be six issues. Let's write out the entire plot head to toe on one sheet of paper and try and fit it into one sheet. Then I take that, I split it up into, okay, in this issue, this is what's going to happen. In this issue, that's what's going to happen. And you sort of split it up that way. Then what I do is I take each one of those, you know, little two, three sentences, put those at the top of the page and expand that and say, okay, just this issue, just issue one is going to be this. And I expand on just what's happening in issue one. I don't worry about what's going to happen in issue two just yet because I want to focus on issue one and I get that out and then I use go to issue two three four five six and then I take that and that's when I start breaking that up and saying okay so this sequence here in issue one is going to be how many pages and they usually the publisher will tell you you have a 20 page story 22 page story 24 page story whatever so okay so this sequence is going to be two pages this sequence is going to be one page. This is going to be, you know, whatever. And I break it down and make sure that I get all the pages that I need. And then I take each one of those pages and say, this is going to be page two, page two, panel one, and then start breaking it down that way into the actual page panel breakdowns, which is what makes up the scripts themselves. And then from there, that that's it you're done or you I'm, I'm assuming you go back then and kind of look at the entire thing oh, and, and i edit. i revise multiple times but probably like most writers you're never totally satisfied and there's a deadline and you just have to like say okay that's good enough oh god yeah <laughs> well they they say they always say you know done is better than than perfect and it's and it's true because what can happen is you can revise something so much that you actually start making it worse. You, need, you know, they say you pick your battles with your, your husband, your wife. You need to pick your battles with yourself as well. And then I'm assuming when you're working with editors, then they're giving you notes and stuff before it goes mm-hmm. out to an artist, right? And, mm-hmm. um, from- and they give notes after the artist as well because, like, after when the art comes back, they might they usually ask you to tweak the dialogue. Oh, right. Yes, that makes sense. So whenever I talk to, to writers about this, like, or, or most people, their knee-jerk reaction when they get notes from somebody is like, no, this person's wrong. My, I'm, my, my stuff is perfect. And then it kind of takes them a minute to be like, all right, fine, okay. And it, it, they kind of come around. Do you have that sort of like ego at first when somebody crit- criticizes your work? A, depends on who it is. And B, depends on what the project is. If it's, if it's a creator-owned book, a lot of times I have that ego with, you know, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't get the character. You don't, you don't get to, to make that, that determination. You feel true ownership on a creator-owned work. But if it's something that's owned by, like, you know, a, a, big, a big company, you, you kind of have to respect that they, they know what's good for the character maybe more than you. Absolutely. There was a there was a scene that I really wanted to keep in at uh, in the Daredevil book. It was a scene that only New Yorkers would get, and it had to do with Papaya King and Gray's Papaya. Which, if you've ever been to New York, you, yeah. you know that. Okay, so you know there's the huge feud between Papaya King and Gray's Papaya. And for people who don't know, those are hot dog places. Yeah, they're 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 hot dog places. And it, and I ended up having to lose it simply because that page we we needed more room for another sequence, and I wasn't crying about it. I was just like, oh man, I wanted to make my papaya king joke. So that so. one you didn't fight for it too hard because you 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 kind of oh, got God, it. Oh God, no. 
No, I mean, and when the when the editor said, you know, I want to keep this in, but we really need to expand this sequence and we could use that page, I was like, okay, I killed my darling, you know, kind of thing. And that's, it is what it is. And you, you've worked as an editor as well. I saw you, you, you've edited a few comics, correct? Yes. Is, yes. Has that changed your relationship with editors and how you kind of see their point of view? No, because I, I, I've always pretty much seen editors' point of view. I mean, my whole philosophy, if it is a philosophy, I don't even know. My whole idea is, look, it's the work. The work is, is paramount. And if the people involved in, the, in making the book aren't making the book for the work, then don't do it. If you're going to fight about something like a Papaya King joke, then you're not doing it for the good of the book. You're not in it for the good of the book. The work is what's going to stand the test of time. It's not even your name. It's the story. Yeah, and that, I, I think there is a surprising amount of, like, ego that you find, I mean, in yourself and in other, I mean, a lot of people in comics are, like, you know, nerdy, kind of introverted people that you don't think would have this kind of attitude. But I think anybody who's creating stuff gets defensive about their vision, and it's, like, it can really easily go from zero to 100 about something as dumb as, like... Yeah, and, and we're all, we, we all think we're the best, and we all think we're the worst, you know, like there are moments when I'm like, oh, that person can't write their way out of a paper bag. And then other moments where I'm like, oh, my God, I'm awful. Like, why did anybody ever give me a job? Like, I don't deserve this. So one thing I didn't know about you until I was researching was that you actually do a lot of lettering work as well. In fact, yeah. you're even teaching a lettering class. I am. I'm teaching a class right now for um, for comics experience. I've I've worked as a letterer on and off for a while, and uh, I've done a lot of logo design and things like that. And um, how did you get into lettering? I wor- when I worked at an ad agency, I was an art director and copywriter at an ad agency, so I was, you know, doing layouts and graphic design work and stuff like that. So I had the programs, I had the general know-how, um, and uh, I didn't have a letterer for M three, so I sort of taught myself lettering. Um, but I was also working at a studio at the time that was putting out comics and they needed a letterer. So it was, oh, well, Erica, you know, you, you already sort of know the programs, just figure it out. (laughs) That's basically what it came down to. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Right. And so how many of your own comics do you letter? Well, I lettered all of M3, which is kind of embarrassing now that I look back on it because they were the first ones that I started lettering. And now I'm like, oh man, if I had the time, I would go back and re-letter all of them. Uh, nobody has that time. Um, <laughs> or hopefully not. Or hopefully not. I, I honestly, I don't even remember how many comics I've lettered on my own. Um, would you, if, if you could letter all of them yourself, would you? Yes and no. Yes, because there are things that letterers have done, choices that they have made that were not wrong choices. They were just different choices than what I would have made. So I would have liked to have made different choices some of the things that I did for Dynamite, I did letter myself. Others, I didn't. I would have liked to have lettered uh, the DC and Marvel stuff just because I could say, you know, I lettered my story for DC and Marvel. Although I did letter a story for DC, a couple stories for DC when I was working at the studio. But again, it's an, another sword you can't fall on. You want, you want the gig? You take the gig. So if you tell Marvel, like, by the way, I can letter this myself, what's their reason? They just, they have their lettering people? They have a um, group of a company that they have that letters. Uh, you'll notice in a lot of the books it'll say VC or virtual calligraphy, um, and so they have people that 
letter their books and like that's their job is they letter Marvel books. So, you know, you're not going to take that away from them. So they might even have like a contract that it's kind of out of their hands, even if they wanted to. They're like, well, we have to contract this to them. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the logistics of it. I just know that it's not something I was allowed to do, which is fine. I mean, I, this is something that I've noticed that maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like there's more people who are writers who are also lettering now, like writer slash letter. And it kind of makes sense to me because, well, lettering is, if you're not like a person who can draw, like lettering is probably the least where you need to have the most art skills. Like you can actually just have a basic design sense and stuff. And it's kind of easy to learn the rules and stuff like that. So for a- I would disagree with that. I would say that you you should have some type of artistic skill to to letter as well. But if I say that, then you know I don't want to scare people away from taking the class. Though. Yeah. No. I mean, you're probably you're 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 probably right. The more artistic, you know, and and, and like you said, you did art art design and things like that. Yeah. Having at least an artistic eye is probably necessary. Um, but there's also the connection between the writer and the lettering because that's the words that are the dialogue and so the writer kind of has a strong connection with that do you think it would make sense for more writers to to get into lettering i think everybody i mean i think comics is very collaborative and because of that um unless you are doing absolutely everything yourself i think you should know what the other spokes on the wheel are doing um when i worked in advertising i did copywriting. I did art direction. Uh, I also wanted to know what the producers do. I wanted to know what the account team did. I think if you know what the other spokes on the wheel are doing, it will make you better at the one or two things that you are focusing on. So I think everybody should know how to letter. I think everyone should try and draw a comic. I think everyone should try and write a comic and like truly script a comic because you get a bigger picture. And I think it it makes you more um, compassionate about the other people in in the process. You know, it's not just, you know, I wrote things on a page and you're going to draw them. You know, it's I wrote things on a page, you're going to draw them and I'm going to know what it takes, how much time you're going to take to do this. Therefore, I'm going to pick my battles. Yeah, I think I, I have a very similar philosophy when I when I was writing my first comic book, I remember going to uh, panels at different conventions with, with artists and inkers and colorists, and they were doing, you know, all these walkthroughs of how they work. And understanding those things definitely helped me, you know, communicating with artists and communicating with colorists and things. And I think we, we hired a letter, and then I was like, oh, they're not following the rules that I've learned about in lettering. And I was able to, like, kind of see that. And then. What rules were they breaking? I, I, I maybe like crossing tails or something like that. I don't I don't remember exactly. I just remember like telling them like, hey, you're supposed to do this. Like on this guy's website, he explains why. I know I've been I've been instructed as a letterer to cross tails. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah. Basically, as as a letterer, I I don't I believe there's only two rules that are completely unbreakable. One is the crossbar eye. Right, and that one it's crazy how much you see that. Um, in uh, Into the Spider Verse, the movie. Yeah. The Credits at the end are done in comic book font, and I would say ninety percent of them have a crossbar oh, eye. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I. It was my husband's watching me. Like he was like, just try and enjoy the movie. I'm like, I can't. Yeah. So basically, I would say the only two things is the crossbar eye and um, having your dialogue cross your live your safety line. That's that's it. Everything else you can. I mean, you shouldn't, but 
you can break. Yeah, I mean, as long as it's clear what's going on, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's, de- it's definitely like the most, I don't know, s- subconscious of the of the disciplines where like you don't even notice. I mean, that's what they say. Like good lettering is supposed to be like unnoticed. Um, yeah. I mean, even if you just spend like an afternoon reading about lettering and the different rules, like the things pop out to you like like crazy when somebody does something and maybe the common reader won't understand why, but it does break the flow or it does you know, take you out of the story or something. Just, it's one of those things where once you, once you know it, you can't ever unsee it. Yeah. Um, if someone comes up to me at a convention and they have like an ash can or something, the first thing I'll look at is the lettering. And if the lettering's bad, I'll just say to them, look, you need to either hire a letterer or do, but if you're doing it yourself, you need to do a better job. I've heard that though from publishers too, that, that they regularly have to ask people to like have their work re-lettered or they will re-letter it for them or something. Cause Lettering is one of those things where it's like people, unless they kind of know, they think it's fine. And I think people think that they can do everything. And that's, and yeah, everyone can, this is what I always say, look, anyone can do anything. Not everyone can do it well. I think lettering and coloring doesn't really get the attention that it deserves, but that could just be ego talking. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's plenty of comics that don't even credit the letter, so... You're not wrong. If you acknowledge the comics that you didn't make the entire thing on your own, unless you did, if you acknowledge that it is a collaborative process, then I think people really do appreciate it. And the better you treat your other collaborators, the better work you're going to get. It's look, if you're a jerk to people, people are not going to do you any favors. If you're nice to people and kind to people and you respect them and you respect their time, then if you say, look, I know this is a really stupid uh, change, but do you have the five minutes to make this change? Then they might be a little more apt to sort of give you that little extra time. Well, I think that's a very nice note to end on. Um, Don't be a jerk, you know? There you go. <laughs> yeah. In, not just in comics, in life. Yeah. Uh, is uh, is there anything you you, you want to promote uh, specifically? Anything you're working on that's exciting? Um, nothing that I can really talk about yet. Uh, I can say that I have this class that I'm doing. I'm going to be at uh, Garden State Comic Fest in uh, Morristown, New Jersey, at the end of this month. I will also be at uh, Keystone Comic Con in August in Philly. I'll be at New York Comic-Con in October, and I will be at Baltimore Comic-Con in uh, also in October. I think it's two weeks after New York. How often do you make it to the West Coast? Uh, I usually go to San Diego, but um, I'm taking this year off. Uh, San Diego is a great show. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's one of the few times that I get to see my West Coast friends, but I'm this has been a crazy year. We bought a house recently. So, I mean, there's a lot of house stuff going on. And so, yeah, so my, my budget for San Diego kind of went toward, um, fixing the front concrete steps. So, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, it happens. I would rather fix the concrete steps and go to San Diego next year than not fix the concrete steps and God forbid somebody hurts themselves. So don't be a jerk and take care of your steps. Yeah. Don't be a jerk and take care of your concrete steps. Um, All right, Erica. Thank you so much for talking to me. No problem. Take care. Bye. Bye.